Graphic Nature acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. He has found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents that. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. It'll be mine. It'll be mine. It'll be Welcome mine. to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers, and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we're joined by Emmett Okuna, writer and podcaster. Emmett, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, and um, I hope you're having a good day so far. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you again after so long, Zoran. I was thinking that the other day that it's it's well, it's been at least three or four years actually. Um, I would yeah, I would go upwards of four to five years. Yeah, I think the last time I saw you was at the Acme Comics. Ah, yes, at the symposium. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the superhero I, symposium. Yeah, so that was that was a very interesting day and I got to do my paper and then you were there at the audience and I think I, I ran up to you in, in a bit of a like contact high after delivering a paper. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> my 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 memory of uh, of that conversation, um, although a bit hazy, was uh, asking me a bunch of questions going, Oh, did it sound okay? Did it come off all right? Did you understand yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody approached me later that day. And they said that because that was the evening where you had the uh, women in comics um, talk at the end of the day's sessions. Mm-hmm. And you had Nicholas Scott and Tom Taylor and um, women academics all on stage talking about comics. And someone told me that they overheard a person in the audience talking about my paper. Now, I don't know if that person was just being kind to me. <laughs> you know what? But, I, I, I wouldn't even question it. Just just take it as something yeah, being kind. Someone it. being kind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I actually had a great time in that symposium. It was really interesting. Uh, there were a lot of really interesting talks. There were some some that were a little bit uh, fringy, and and by fringy I mean you know they were they were loosely, yeah, uh, loosely yeah. connected to comics. But w- with some of the um, with some of the some of the talks were were actually really interesting. Um, yeah, yes. I, it was. I'm 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 kind of a little bit disappointed that it's not a running thing. You know, mm. and I know it was all around uh, Liam's paper or Liam's uh, doctorate, possibly from memory. Yeah, because he's he was teaching a course in graphic novels. That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, th- you also have out in because um, I also delivered a paper out in Perth at ECAF, uh, the Eth Cowden um, Comics Festival as mm-hmm. well. Uh, that Bruce Mutard is involved in. 
And yes, he is. So <laughs> that is yeah. involved in everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he gets around, but um, because he's doing his um studies out there, at, uh, Stuart Medley. So there was this sort of comic scholarship movement, I think, emerging from Australia. Uh, but obviously, with everything that's gone down, it's gotten a bit quiet in that front. Mm. Um, but I think what was interesting about Liam's uh, Acme uh, Symposium was that you had, as you say, a very broad church because you got people who would come up on stage and deliver a speech about Superman and the history of Superman from, say, a certain period of time to today. Yeah. And then you have people who had clearly done a media course, or they they had a um, they had a, a background in in very broad, broadly associated sociological study. And then they'd mention comic, comics every couple of words to sort of make it relevant. Like, you, you, okay, you're piggybacking your your work into this symposium so you can get the points as an academic. Yeah, it, well... <laughs> you we, presented we so many conferences. Whether, whether they were getting points or not, there was uh, there was a couple that really stood out. and um, But one in particular was... Uh, and I don't understand why I found it so fascinating, but it was around the uh, IP... Uh, behind uh, DC Comics and and Marvel, but but they centered mainly around the, the talk mainly centered around um, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and basically showing the trajectory of patterns that were connected with those particular characters uh, at certain points in in the time of the last 30, 40 years. Yes, and that was and that's uh, fascinating stuff. Like, it it's is. really interesting stuff, but it, and and you don't expect it, but that's that's the advantage of having a broad church. Mm. You Absolutely. can take all that in. Uh, so I don't want to dismiss it, but at the same time, there was occasions where I was there going, hmm, <laughs> you're drawing a long bow on this one. <laughs> I agree. I agree. There was some, there was some really far out stuff in, in some of the, in some of the talks, but, but again, you know, as we've already mentioned it, there was some that were just so interesting, even though they were, they were, you know, drawing those long bows. You, uh, you have, you have Finally, I should finally the right word now to to say that you've you've gone into writing your own comics. It's been a couple of years. Yeah, there's, I've um, I've had a few stories published through anthologies, and uh, last year I self-published a comic with uh, called Far Away with uh, Jefferson Sensinski and Thomas Maurer, and we did some backup material for the same comic with a bunch of Australian artists. And this year I did the same thing again. The same folks, uh, different Australian artists in the in the gallery, the back of the comic. But the Beating Wings is almost like far away. And the Beating Wings are my two self-published. I've paid for it. I've published it. I've launched it. Um, whereas previously I was going hat in hand to publishers and going, uh, please, sir, would you would you please publish my comic? <laughs> so uh, this is. This is me building a portfolio of work that I can then say, okay, I'm a comic writer. I have comics to my name. Yeah, right. Here they are. You know? Yeah, yeah, cool. And the, uh, the, the pitches, I'm assuming they didn't go very well. Well, I mean, it always, it always depends what people want. Mm -hmm. So you can take on board what they see. They, they have an agenda. They have an audience. They want to reach Absolutely. this audience. You know, you take that, you go, fair enough. I, I have... Uh, pitched to uh, one particular publisher, I won't say their name, and they sent me uh, a form letter back, uh, like, you know, one or two words were personalized. But I, I had that in my fridge as a point of pride. I was like, well, I got rejected by this editor. <laughs> That's yeah, wow. great. <laughs> so that was that sitting on my sitting on my fridge is, um, uh, you know, I didn't succeed, but yeah, this person read something I wrote. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, but yeah, no, I think 
if you want to get published, you, you people will take your work. You know, the question is, can you afford to give your work away for free or for very little money? That's the question you need to ask yourself as a creator. And I was I was at the point where I was going, well, if if this is the landscape that I have to sort of be a part of, and if I'm trying to get my name out there, why don't I just put something out myself that I've fought the bill for? And then at least I put some skin in the game. And I'll move on from there. I think I think that's in- increasingly much like many of the other uh, indus- arts industries. That's pretty much the only way you can really get a foothold these days is is to unfortunately go out and and do something off your own off your own bat with your, you know investing yeah. in yourself effectively. Because, yeah. Because uh, just by the law of nature, at the moment there's just, you know it's increasingly harder and harder and harder to get uh, your name, you know, or your foot in any door really. Yes, and. I, I think it's that it's the nature of money is the nature of actually putting money towards your own creative work. That's bound up with all sorts of privilege. So I've written afterwards to the two books I've self-published. Um, and in both of them, I've addressed this as a point saying, I'm aware that I have a day job that pays my bills, that pays for my mortgage, that you know goes towards uh, the house, household uh, costs. And I still have enough money to squirrel away to make a comic book. I am conscious of the privilege that that entails. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am a little wary of, of the dependence of of young creators coming up on things like Kickstarter, crowdfunding, things like that. I'm going, well, that's not ideal. Um, ideal because for you or ideal in, in the general sense? Ideal in the sense of, all right, if you don't have a public platform, if you're not known, if you're starting out and you don't have the money, Crowdfunding isn't necessarily going to get it over the line. Right. That's my concern. Uh, so putting all your eggs in one basket, if you like. I am concerned that there's this expectation that comics are so cheap and easy to make. It's no problem. Just crowdfunded your grand. And I'm going, well, no, like have a safety net, have a job. Uh, you know, don't go broke doing this. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, I, I'm I'm worried about people like who put their head neck on the line for a crowdfunding campaign and then end up supporting it themselves. That's that's the thing that really scares me. But isn't so that? I, uh, but isn't that? Um, you know, if if I've created a comic and I have no mm. money, and there are people out there who are willing to support it, what's the harm in it? That'd be amazing. That'd be amazing if you could cut through the noise. Like, who are you? What are you doing? Right. Why do they know who you are? You know, that's my point. Like everyone, if everyone's doing it, then how do you get your thing funded? Uh, So that's kind of my concern. And that's where I'm worried about everyone's expectation that, oh yeah, I get on Kickstarter or get on any other crowdfunding campaign um, platforms. It'll be fine. It'll be great. I'm wary of the expectation of easy success. Right. And, well, isn't it isn't it know. possibly then a, a good lesson for a lot of creators that that do want to let's say mm. who think oh I'll just jump on Kickstarter and they float it and uh, it goes nowhere it doesn't get on there and yeah. you know I I, th- I think that's kind of part of the process and then they go well okay no one's willing to give me the money um, mm. I'm now going to have to do it myself and maybe this conversation we're having is part of the process too that we maybe dampen some of those expectations a bit and go, well, you mightn't get it and you should go into it, ex- you know, with that expectation that I'm, you might I, not work, you know. I would actually be surprised if people 
w- were thinking that way and going, I'm going to jump a kickstart and it's all going to be peachy keen. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, maybe I'm just a negative person, but I think to myself, if I'm creating a comic mm. and no one knows me from Barisop, I already know that. Um, yeah. And I uh, floated on Kickstarter, and but with the assumption that it's going to be, you know, the money's going to come through and everything's going to be awesome. Like, you know, I look at that going, well, that's pretty naive from, from you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, particularly with, with having that sort of an expectation of, you know, getting the money to float it. And, and whether it's 500, 200 or 1,000. I, I, let's, 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 let's take it a step further. Let, let's, let's even go, what of the person who goes into an says i'm gonna make a comic and i'm gonna sell the rights and i'm gonna get a movie out of this i'm gonna do robert kirkman <laughs> i'm gonna be the next big thing that it's that sense of idealism uh about comics as a source of success i'm 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 worried about it i i, 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 I actually i disagree i'm not i don't mm. think you should be worried about it at all because the likelihood mm. of that happening to to someone who's just created their first comic put it together you know, again, it's something something like a comic book. The way I view it is, it might be before its time. It might be mm. amazing. You might have spent fifteen grand putting it together, but if no one buys it, that's pretty much proof in your pudding. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Like you yeah. look at you look at some of the commercial companies, and you look at the commercial companies in the nineties, and the the schlock that they were. Marvel was pushing out some atrocious comics. And the only reason some of them were getting sold was because via habit or people were people thought that they were going to make big dollars out of them. But they were so shit that, you know, five years later, they were, they were in $1 bins and they weren't even selling then. Yeah. I was thinking about this last night, actually. I was thinking about our conversation and what, what we touch on. So I didn't expect this conversation, but I... Uh, Neither did I. I. Thinking... I just wanted to talk about your comics and, and yourself. No, no, and we will. But... Um... <laughs> I, 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 the idea of the comic itself, the comic as an object, right? Uh, I'm old enough to remember when the comic was a very delicate, fragile object. As in, you read it a couple of times, the paper started yellowing, it would start falling apart. I was a kid with an Iron Man book. I probably threw it around the room a couple of times. It was all creased and, you know, staples started falling out. By the time of the 90s that you're just describing, all of a sudden you had glossier paper, you had harder covers, you had this idea of value attached to the comic. And I think that affects how people look on it. And part of that was that perception of the comic as an object in the 90s and onwards was you're going to make a lot of money out of this. This is going to be huge. And of course, it was due to speculation and inflated value. Now, what happened was the market crashed (laughs) because all these comics were crap. They were pumping out absolute nonsense. And they were pumping out every kind of X-Men ripoff you could think of. I'm obviously I'm maligning image right now, yeah, let's, uh, but Marvel let's not even, too. Let's not even start and talking DC. about all the special covers and yeah, the, gimmicks. the foil and all that kind of stuff. That was all happening. And that was because the perception of the commercial value of this object, the comic book had suddenly and, and culturally, commercially, all these things had suddenly skyrocketed. Because it used to be a vulgar, cheap, disposable art form. And then it became attached to all these other forms of mass media. And it suddenly became more valuable. And I think we're still in the backwash of that today. Because now we've got movies and video games and television shows and all sorts of novels and all sorts of things happening. And you've got actors whose entire careers now are, you know, the, the, the linchpin of their career is 
putting on a mask and playing a character who's 80, 90 years old as a property. We are not in the same space that people who are making comic books 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago were, where they were looked down on as making cheap, vulgar work. Now it's now there's a sense of expectation that you're going to be successful and you're going to bring in money. And that brings attention, that brings additional competition to make comics because everyone else wants to make their comic, everyone wants to make their mark. There are people out there who are doing it for the love of it. They, they just, they have a story they want to tell. And the thing is, you are surrounded by others who also have stories they want to tell and maybe want to be hugely successful. What does that mean for you? Revise your expectations. What does that mean for the product you're making? How well is it going to do? And and this is this this is where I I, I worry about that because I I worry about young people coming in and again I'm aging here, Zoran, so that's why I know, now I'm thinking in these terms. Who think they're going to be the next Kirkman, Stanley, Jeff Johns, whatever it is, and and what does that do to the culture of comics? I actually don't think it has that much of an effect, to be honest. And and mm. hey, call me, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm not saying the right things, or maybe I'm not. I'm not looking at it from the right perspective. But as far as I'm concerned, anyone that's willing to put pen to paper, create a comic, uh, irrespective of their expectations, irrespective of the amount of work, money, or you know, what, whatever else they need to put that comic together, whatever intentions or expectations they have, it's irrelevant. The point of the matter, for me, the main point is they're creating the comic. Now, if they create it and no one gives a shit, Mm. It either it's either going to humble them, put them off, uh, or um, maybe maybe inspire them uh, to 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 try again. You know, so it's it's as far as I'm concerned, it's win win. Like I, mm. I don't I don't mind them wanting to sell prop, you know, creating a comic to sell a property um, down the line. It because the likelihood of that happening, as far as I you know, as far as I'm aware. You know, and now I'm you know projecting into the future. Um, yeah. The likelihood of them gaining that sort of success is, you know, they may as well be buying lottery tickets. So, yes. So if 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 they genuinely think that the thing that they're creating is going to be awesome and they're going to be able to turn it into something else, and they create that comic, great, because it's it's a lesson for them. It, you know, they might you know they might not be all that. Um, well read. They may not have have uh, been around comics that long, and so it's again, it's just it's another another lesson for them. It's a, it's another opportunity for them to grow and learn as a comics creator, as a person. Mm. I don't think I don't think worrying about the state of someone's intentions when creating a comic is um is actually worthy. I, I think it's it's you know if if it's if there's a if there's a correlation between the way you think about your own work versus, you know, oh, they're just wasting their time or, you know, it's like it's not your choice and it's not mm. your it's it's not your responsibility because if they mm. want to create that comic, they will. And if it's good, they'll know about it because people who do give it a shot will either talk about it or just put it on the pile or, or recycle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's no different from anything that these companies, you know, the difference between that and let's say, Marvel or DC or, or Image or whoever, um, and some of these smaller, newer, you know, Aftershock and uh, mm. Boom, they're all doing the exact same thing. They're doing the exact same thing. Their intention is to push their thing. 
Mm. So they're doing the only difference is they've got so much more money and so and they've got access to so much more. And so uh you know it, it's it, everybody's trying to get their thing uh uh looked at, noticed and um you know it, it's 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 part of the course I reckon and if and you know credit to anybody who's gotten money through uh through Kickstarter uh to create the comic that's great. That's awesome. That means that you you're you're one step closer to what it is that you want and if you can turn it around and and turn it into something that that can possibly you know garner you some you know some accolades or even some more money than you could have hoped that's amazing but again like that symposium there's such a broad church of of readers and and fans that you may find there's only a really small amount of people that dig what you're doing you know so yeah I actually, I, 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 you know, whether this is callous or not, <laughs> I actually don't mind the intentions of someone putting something together because if it's good, you know, it's good. Uh, you know, and again, the, the, the breadth of taste in the world, and particularly nowadays where there's subgenres of subgenres of subgenres, like, you know, if you, get, if you can get a little bit of happiness from the small piece of pie that you've got or that you managed to claim, great, good luck to you and, and more power mm. to you. And let's see, you know, let's see what else you can do. And they might be able to reinvest whatever they do from that Kickstarter into something that, you know, something else, you know. So, you know, I'm not, you know, sorry, Emmett, but I'm not worried about that at all. <laughs> it's okay. That's okay, man. That's okay. You know, uh, but I still reckon you need to stop worrying about everybody else. And, and, and <sighs> if they, if they wanna, yeah. they're going to do what they want to do, man. Yeah, I know. I um, I, I'm on a couple of Discord servers, and I see the way people talk about. Oh, I've got this Kickstarter coming out. I'd love if you all support it. And I was like, Oh, Jesus, shut up! <laughs> Just stop <laughs> talking so much. But, um, I, I, but I think that's you know, uh, I'm pretty yeah. sure that I've made my point clear on it. it, it you're not going to be able to stop it. They're going to no. do that shit anyway. It's it's what they know. It's what they understand. And if hell, if they can get the support, fucking good luck to them. Go go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I don't begrudge anyone that at all. It was just a case of um, what I guess I'm not worried about it so much as what do you realistically expect? <laughs> yeah, it's more my yeah. question. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? So at the end of the day, it's like don't waste your time. What are you doing? You're wasting time. No one's going to read your book. Why are you putting mm. it up on Kickstarter? You're just going to disappoint yourself, right? And so. As far as I'm concerned, it's like, well, no, actually, I think that's important. I think they need to do that. It, let's be honest. Anyone, anyone can write a comic book and draw it and put it together and do it. But not everyone's going to dig it. Not everyone's going to like it. It's that's like it. any th piece of art. And I, I was in a band many, many years ago. And I remember saying, hey, the moment we step on stage, 50% of those people who are listening are not going to like what we do. At least, <laughs> at least 50%. And, you know, people like it, great. But if you're not doing it because you want to do it, why the fuck are you doing it? You know? And and I think that's an important thing for a lot of people, particularly when they're creating something, to understand that you may, you may think everything's awesome, but the moment you put it out there, you have no more control. That's so it. don't think about it. Just create it because you want to. And people will come. If pe you know, The people that like it will like it. And the people that don't, they won't. That's a, that's my view anyway. I just I just think like from my perspective, the, the difference is yeah we've probably seen a lot more than some of the younger cats that are coming up and doing some stuff, but that doesn't mean that people in their age brackets are, aren't gonna love it. They might check it out and go wow this is cool, and we look mm -hmm. at it and go well we've been reading for twenty years and you know that's lame, but you know it's it's not up to us. It's it's the readers that make the decision. So 
our opinion only matters to us. Mm. And to people who may well, you know, might say, oh, did you read that? Yeah, it's a bit lame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whereas that might be the bee's knees for somebody, you know. I, you know, and that that and that's the only way I can explain, you know, people liking Rob Liefeld, you know. <laughs> no, people. I think people like Rob Liefeld for a couple of reasons. Um, there's some folks out there uh, that really enjoy the recapturing that sense of energy that they got from him back in the '90s. I think, and they're very sincere in that. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the book, but the uh, the sort of Suicide Squad. Uh, knockoff from Image, Copra, Copra, um, yeah, the guy behind that, like he's he's channeling a lot of sort of '90s energy into his work, and it's it's clearly an indie work, but at the same time, it's it's got this sense of being a 12 year old in 1992. You know, it's just in mind you, so perfect. Let me clarify: it's it's not that I hate Rob Liefeld. I actually don't even know him. I've never met him, so sure. I don't hate the man. But certain pieces of his work that were yeah. just laughable, and and uh, and my brain just. I didn't understand the the uh, uh, the furor around a lot of his stuff, or the yeah, furor, and, I should say. And if you look at it, the other group that I would maybe cite here would be folks who are nostalgic for that time, and they see him as representing a sense of themselves, and that's mm-hmm. where a lot of identity gets bound up in it and that's where you have issues of uh, if you criticise him you criticise me and that's where you're on shaky ground Rob Liefeld whenever you see people say Rob Liefeld can't draw feet all of a sudden folks will go how dare you attack my childhood which of course isn't what you were doing Um, so it's very loaded (laughs) yeah mind you he did I mean he's that that was I think for me that the the hardest part was some of his work was exceptional and then mm. some of it was just phoned in and you just go really dude like come on Have you yeah. ever seen the um Image Revolution documentary that Patrick Meaney made I don't think I ha- oh might have it might have been a long time ago There's know. an ex- there's an extraordinary bit because he gets all the, ver- the various founders the Image founders to talk to camera about their time their experience but um there's a sequence where Rob Liefeld's on camera with uh some mate of his and they're sitting and he, he's he's like um encouraging his friend to speak up and he's like how many cars did i buy you how many cars did i buy you see this guy i bought him a car you know i had so much money i bought him a car and <laughs> the, it, there is i get that sudden realization of oh there are people in this world who um are very different from me and <laughs> they uh they they like to flash the cash you know and uh, he seems to be one of those folks well he was really uh, young like what he was yeah. Young. yeah he was about 16 16 17 or something like that when he was drawing when he started yeah what does that do to you what does that do but like again you you're looking at uh, an industry which was built on the labor of uh 15 16 17 year olds for decades that didn't know what they were signing away the rights to with the exception of bob kane who knew very well what he was signing the rights away to <laughs> and he manipulated that contract law in his favor um for many many years for many years because wasn't the whole thing with him that he'd signed an agreement with national at the time so before dc and then it came out that the background was this huge success and he and his dad pointed out to them that, oh, well, you've signed a non-legally binding agreement with, an, with a minor. <laughs> oh, sign. really? I believe that's true. I believe that somebody write into Graphic Nation and correct Emma Taguna. Please feel free. But I, I seem to recall that was the one of the, the dodgy little uh, stratagems of Mr. Bob Kane was uh, he signed an agreement that he wasn't legally allowed to sign. And then he was able to revise the terms of that agreement and ensure his own future enrichment. 
Um, but many creators who entered the industry at a very young age who weren't as savvy um, did not have the same experience. Well, and, you could uh, you could you could say the the same thing for what's happening now, and I'm noticing it more and more over the last couple mm-hmm. of years that a lot of the larger companies are now farming you know farming artists from different countries, and in some mm-hmm. cases countries that aren't doing so well, let's say economically, and are able to possibly you know exploit. Uh, some of these artists into to doing work for some of the majors. I, I can't imagine them making too much money, considering you know things like. Uh, I, I look. I don't know. I've never seen a contract. This is all hearsay. But when I'm I'm seeing a lot of different names from a lot of different places, and I don't mm-hmm. imagine that some of these big houses are paying these artists a lot of money. I just don't see that happening. And Zoran, that is why we need a comics union. Anyway, uh- <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> So we've discussed the state of the world and the industry for the last century, I think. Yeah, I don't look. I don't think that's going to stop. I think questions like this are going to come up for for, for ages, particularly when you're talking about the commercial side of things. But I, you know, home more more homegrown stuff, and possibly even in some of the other kind of small indie markets around the world, you know, things are things are a lot more stable, and um, people are a lot yeah. more happier, from what I can tell. Oh man, like I, you know, uh, as the folks might be able to tell uh, listening to this, I am not from here. I'm from Ireland. And in the time that I've lived in your country here, I have witnessed a scene emerging in Dublin and in Ireland that I would have given my left arm to be a part of when I was a teenager, you know. And now you have creators coming up through Ireland who are who are getting published by the majors, but also doing lots of online comics and web comics and indie comics and doing really well. Um, but also there's a support network there that wasn't before. Like even just mm. here in Australia, the the difference between, you know, nowadays looking at looking at a lot of the comics creators and stuff that are around these days versus even 10, 15 years ago, only 15 years ago. Mm. And uh, just the difference in, in the attitudes, you know, f- from, you know, my attitude in particular, uh, you know, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, the, the way that uh, Australian comics now have, have uh, mature is probably the wrong, mature is probably the wrong word, but, but there's, you know, the, the people are a lot more excited about it and are willing to create and people are willing to support it. Like you say, the support network is there. Whereas, mm. you know, I remember in the mid nineties, like, you know, if you were an Australian creator, unless you were working or unless you were doing stuff for, you know, the major, the major companies in the States, no one gave a shit. Mm. Or, yeah. or if they did, there was a very, very small number of people that would. Yeah. I was, uh, I was, I wrote a piece recently about, I, uh, my, my father passed away last year and, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. you know, no, thank you. And, um, I was very, you know, it was, it was tough to deal with because he, it was just at the start of COVID. So, um, I, you know, we were being pulled in all sorts of different directions and I didn't have time to grieve. Anyway, I wrote a piece about a memory I have of him waking me up in the morning and handing me a newspaper article all about an issue of Generation X, which is the sort of X-Men spinoff from the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And uh, he knew I liked comics. He knew I liked superhero comics. So he, he brought me this article and said, here you go, that you'd like this. And so I just, for this article, I decided to track down that comic and read it and see how like this impression of it from this article I had when I was whatever years old, how that fits up with the reality of the comic itself as I read it today. And guess who worked on that comic? Mr. Gary Shaliner. 
<laughs> really? <laughs> yes. He wow. Has all the artists on it. Yes. Um, so that was quite a surprise, <laughs> seeing a familiar name. Um, How'd the writing hold up? Uh, well, the writing was Mr. Scott Lobdell. So, um, uh, Mr. Scott Lobdell, and I think Jeff Loeb might have been involved too. So there was some dodgy sexual content in there in this comic book about teenagers. Mm. I think that's another uh, way in which I, I, I think, and this is an objective fact. This is not me alleging anything. Um, it, it, it's a creepy comic. But if you look at the state of comics today, there seems to be so much more awareness of that. And And again, if there are more women writing comics today, you know, there hopefully are more checks on that kind of stuff getting out the gate. I think I think uh, that's why. I think that's why yeah. that the comics these days are, are are different, and there is so much more uh, uh, attention to mm. to making things a little bit more accessible and not so creepy and degenerate, um, because women are now a big part of of comics, and and mm. um, I, I for one have always supported it, and I thought. It was amazing, and I know I've said it on the show a bazillion times, and I've said it in, in person with m- many people over the years that you know, if at the age of fifteen, and you know, there were, you know, there were, um, I knew girls that were reading comics that I liked. Holy mm-hmm. shit! It would have been a completely different, you know, it would have been completely different. <laughs> Everything would have been completely different, and and the, mere, <laughs> and the mere fact, the mere fact that uh, you know, having having women creators working on books it really is a different perspective like just the you know the writing is different it feels different and it's like i remember i still to this day say the first time i read one of the major books and i can't remember i think it was i think it was kelly thompson uh, mm. i think it was kelly thompson uh, writing captain marvel and it was the it was huge news and uh news and and i read it and it felt different like i was reading i'm going this is totally not a dude writing this like this actually sounds like a woman and mm. she's writing a woman and this is the best thing ever because it, it it all makes sense like it's not some dude putting in you know putting words in the mouths of a female character going i think this is what she'd say yeah <laughs> you know so yeah. it just sound it, it was it, in the end it was just authentic that's mm. what it was it was like yeah because i've heard the females in my life say things that were similar or, you know, or the same. And it just completely works. And you go, yeah, that's so much more believable. All you need to do is go back and look at some of the shit from the 80s, the 70s and the 60s and look at some of those comics and, you know, just go, that's not how, that's not how a woman talks. That's not what a, a woman would not do that. You know, it's just, it's so evident. Yeah. Or even even the idea of trauma being visited on women in these comics, like they were so ready to turn to that as a trope, and you know I'm talking physical trauma, sexual trauma, emotional and abuse, trauma all the general. rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Trauma in general, you know, being ladled out there, and then you know, the the sort of distaff counterpoint of the male characters would not be visited a fraction of the same kind of suffering, and that's because the writers behind those books simply didn't have that sense of empathy. <laughs> they simply didn't, they simply didn't have an investment yeah. in, in how, what happened to these characters. So it, it makes a difference. I read, um, future state wonder woman by, uh, Joelle Jones, uh, just in terms of what you were describing a moment ago, the unity of vision of that book, you know, because she's writing it and she's the artist, the, the sheer, like, every, she's contr- fully in control of that book. I, w- I would buy anything Joel Jones writes or draws 
anything. It it's so warm. It's so like rich in in expression, both how the how the character looks and how she moves and how she behaves, mm-hmm. but then how she her actual personality comes just cuts through. The fact that this is a Wonder Woman book, it's not the Wonder Woman that we've known for all these years. She can Joel Jones can just like wipe the slate clean and just talk about this character in this moment or how she react in this way, as you say, that feels more authentic. Mm-hmm. Whereas Diana. Wonder Woman, who was created by a man uh, with, I think, research has now proven a lot of collaboration from his women partners in his life were informing the vision of uh, Wonder Woman and how she behaved. But still, it was a man whose name was on the character as a sort of discussion of free love and sex and bondage and all the rest of it. That's how the character starts. And over the years, more and more men have written Wonder Woman and moved her further and further and further away from that to almost a weird Virgin Mary type form of uh, scolding feminism, uh, which doesn't work. And whenever you have a, a woman writing Diana Wonder Woman, there's this sense of moving the needle back towards more a, a human character a character with some uh, actual warmth and and sense of compassion and what that might be what what lived compassion actually is and not a stereotype of a sort of nagging uh, older sister which i think sometimes she can be uh, portrayed as uh, it, it it's it's remarkable just seeing the difference and then joel jones just has the advantage of well this is an entirely different character so i don't have to bother with all of that i don't mm. have to i don't have to push against these sort of atrophied versions of this character. This is a whole new character who simply has the same name. Let's go. And well, her, her run on, on Catwoman was yeah. uh, fairly similar. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And just seeing Joelle Jones's art. And I the first time I saw Joelle Jones's work was with Lady Killer um, out by Dark Horse, mm. which was an amazing series. And uh, with Catwoman... I don't know how much work she did with with DC prior to that, but taking on Catwoman, I think, for the first 20 or so issues. And uh, just the way that she would have the supporting characters interplay with, with Catwoman. It was it was remarkable. It's like, why, yeah, why wouldn't, you know, you, it's almost like I've never seen mm. Catwoman interact with people that she would have met. And it was really, it was, it was breathing, as far as I'm concerned, it was breathing new life into the character. And, and just the the you know everything was authentic. The the characters that she would interact with, the types of people that she would have, you know, working with her and and uh, you know friends and all that kind of stuff. I just thought this is this is uh, it was. I think that was one of the main reasons why I enjoyed it. it was just the way that uh, the character was approached by a woman, rather than you know just another dude writing you know a story about someone who dresses up as a cat with big boobs, you know. And it had the adventure of being a breakup book as well. So she's not simply a prop of the um, Batman story. This is her own story. Hmm. So yeah, no, I, I I really enjoy her work. Uh, when I first saw the slate of all the Future State stuff, I just went, oh god, another another gimmick. And then when I saw that Joelle Jones was doing the um, Wonder Woman, I went, oh, fuck, now I got to buy it. Um, <laughs> so, but that's the only one I'm buying. <laughs> Emmett, uh, I think uh, we can we can take a break. So we'll be right back with Emmett Okuno after this. Go, welcome back. 
and uh, Emmett, just to uh, shift the gears a little now, can you tell yes, me? The, le- the lecture is over now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, hear your uh, your comic book origin story. What was uh, what was the first thing you read, or if you can remember that far back? My comic book origin story. Uh, I remember reading uh, Asterix comics. Uh, my dad was a school teacher, and he would uh, during the summer months teach uh, Spanish students who came to Dublin for English lessons. He'd teach them. So he'd continue working through the summer months. And he would bring me with him to the um, school. And I would sit out in the car outside the school just reading volumes of Asterix. That was, that was I, that's my principal memory. Um, and from there, I moved on to Tintin. From there, are things like the Beano and the Dandy with the UK comic periodicals. I don't think if you, I don't know if you folks got them out here in Australia. Never heard of them, no. Yeah, Bino and Dandy were mainstays on the... You could get them in the shops. You could get them on the shelves in the shops. And um, we had a newsagent who would order in... Burns newsagent in Lorath Cool, I remember. Uh, he would order in the occasional Marvel or DC book. And I was um, compelled to read things like Iron Man. I loved Iron Man. And uh, I would pick those up, but they were more expensive. They were smaller than the European or UK comics. I remember they, they looked um, they looked thicker, but they were smaller and they were easier to damage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, so, that newspaper print is awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I do miss it, I'll be honest. And as I said to you before, I have, I have thoughts on the idea of the comic as an object then and now and, and what's changed about it. But I, I do remember just like reading Iron Man a lot. And, and X-Men came in my teenage years. But, but I think when I started reading X-Men, all of a sudden there was a wider appreciation for that. And I knew people in school who read X-Men. I knew people who read Superman, Spider-Man. When I was a kid, it felt like I was the only one who knew about this stuff. Cause I was growing up in a village outside of Dublin and there was no one to talk to about this. So this was, you know, I think I remember the sense of community I used to get from letters pages, mm-hmm. like before the internet, before any of this sense of you can connect at any time to any taste tribe out there that you want to be a part of. There was this sense of isolation, which can be useful uh, because it gives you time to reflect. But I remember reading all these people uh, commenting on the latest issue of X-Men or Avengers or whatever it was. And this sense of, oh, other people have uh, a sense of these characters that I don't have. And also they've been reading them for longer than I probably have. And now I'm going to try and track down these stories. Who the hell is Korvac? You know, like, <laughs> questions like that. I still don't know. Yeah. He was an evil computer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, like I, uh, I, I just, I have this sense of that being a time of, learning about America and learning about American superhero comics. And then the movies became more and more frequent. And yeah, I, I, I knew stuff about this genre that my peers didn't know uh, until a couple of years later. And I think in the last 10 years, that sense of, oh, I know all this stuff hit again because the new generation of people were discovering it all for the first time. So it's been, I've, I think I've lived through two waves of uh, superhero pop culture popularity. And so what, what would you say was the, uh, the comic that actually inspired you, whether it be the last, you know, the last 10 years or, or in fact, what really ignited that point in your brain and said, you know what, I could probably write a comic book. 
Well, I mean, I've said this before in a different podcast. Um, it wasn't a comic as such. It was actually doing what you're doing right now. It was interviewing Australian comic creators. I uh, was the host of a Australian comics podcast called Beardly and the Geek. And I got to know Australian creators and I had them on the podcast. Uh, Ryan Huff was the co-host and we would ask how folks were making a living making comics and how they were getting their work sold in the States or what, what success meant as an Australian comic creator. And just the more I heard about it, the more I uh, got to know these folks, I was like, ah, I think, I think I'll take a run at this myself. So it was podcasting that actually <laughs> gave me the comics bug. Not before, not, not, um, not while you were, you know, in your teenage years reading the X-Men and going, I, I would love to do this. Like there was, there wasn't anything back then or even in your early twenties that kind of rocked your uh, world and, and made you think I could do this. Different question. Well, do you remember? Do you remember when Marvel did that thing in the early two thousands, the epic thing, uh, where oh, yeah. you? Yeah, I did one. Uh, so the I think the first script I ever wrote was uh, a Moon Knight script. And I've, got, I've got a scoop for you here, Zoran. So Shoot. I wrote this. I wrote this script, and it was an idea I had that Moon Knight is a um, is all about the breakdown in his psyche. Like he keeps his sense of reality keeps collapsing. So the comic script opened with him on a movie set. And I so the first, this. <laughs> yeah, hear me out. Yeah. Okay. Go on. So there's a movie, there's a, we see an action sequence. Turns out it's a movie set. Turns out he's uh, having a breakdown. He's in a psychiatric ward. He's, you know, all the, there was these decline of his sense of self just kept going to the script. Uh, I wrote that up. I typed it up. Uh, I sent in the post, um, I was living in Edinburgh at the time. I was making very little money as a waiter and I had to use the public library to put all this together. And then I sent it off. Never heard it back. Uh, a couple of years ago, <laughs> <laughs> I picked up a, a, a Moon Knight comic. Um, I won't name the, oh, I will. It was Jeff Lemire. And um, he is in this imaginary world and he's in a psych ward and then he's in a movie set. And then, you know, and the doctor who examines him in the psych ward, her name was Dr. Emmett. This broke me. <laughs> I had an existential crisis. I, I would too. I would too. <laughs> Holy I, shit. I read that. I, I, look, I read that. I read that story too. Mm. And it was great. Yeah, it's good. How, it's good stuff. Well, I, I, I wouldn't even know where to, where to start asking questions about unpacking all of that. Yeah, I, I am willing to accept that this is just a massive coincidence. Well, depending on who you spoke to, yeah, <laughs> they would probably agree that there was nothing, uh, nothing but uh, coincidence. Just, it just happened mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, a bit of a research fail. At one point, Doctor Emmett says that Emmett is uh, an Irish name. It isn't. It's an English name. Um, but, so. Well, hang on, hang on. In in the in the book, yeah. Dr. Emmett that, talks seem, about Emmett seem, now as I'm, an Irish name. Now my yeah. now my brain is uh, starting mm-hmm. to yeah, holy shit. I, yeah, I <laughs> Wow. I, I, have you yeah. ever thought of have you ever thought of getting in touch with with Lemire and asking him how would did... you broach it? How would you broach? It? <laughs> like and 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 who knows? Like who knows cuz like with a lot of these talent competitions, you know, I always had the suspicion that it's 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 a content farming, you know? If you have to pay uh, 20, 30, 40 writers and artists to do work for you, you have to budget for that. If you, can, if you don't have to pay hundreds of people 
to write material for you and you can just lift what you want bonus <laughs> so. I, I i would i would imagine that for the most part it's 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 almost a, a jewel it's a um uh what's the, what am i thinking of it's a win-win situation for Absolutely. the company. From the outset, they're saying, well, we're offering people exposure and all they have to do is just give us an idea. And, yeah, and, and, and then we should say for the record, we should say for the record, legally, totally cool. This is, you sign away any rights you may have. There's, right. there's, you haven't got a leg to stand on. It's basically, this is locked in. Uh, take your shot. Maybe you'll get a gig. Um, but it so, would still be you know, nice to know. <laughs> <laughs> Just for my own curiosity, I'm, I, I, I wonder. I do wonder. Um, but yeah, that, that was my first failed attempt uh, writing a comic. And uh, I didn't do it again for an, at least a decade after that, when I was here in Australia, when I started taking runs at writing uh, short stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I, one more thing I want to talk mm. about that Moon Knight script. Is sure. It is possible that yes. that you know with with regard to ideas as such and when you yes. think about the amount of people on the planet and all these yep. individual brains working in in their individualistic ways a million monkeys on a million typewriters <laughs> right yes. like, that you know yeah on on some level it is quite it's very possible that two people on the planet had the exact same idea irrespective sure. of the timeline it happening do you know what really stumps me though what dr e- dr emmett that uh, I uh, that kind of uh, that's what that's yeah. where I get worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you say, you signed your right your, your right to it away, but yeah. But it would be nice to know that that was a that was a uh, um. What's it would be nice to know that that was actually a, a deliberate a, a deliberate nod. <laughs> That would no, no, like that would be, be amazing. Be nice. Like it would be like, yeah. here's you know, tip of the hat to you for coming up with this great idea that I've now expanded on and have made some money from. You know, I th- I think that would be that would be pretty awesome if that was and, an, an and intentional it's, nod. It's 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 Jeff Lemire and is it Greg Smallwood who did the art? Uh, I can't recall, but that is a great run. Yeah, like absolutely, it's a really really good run. <laughs> yeah, um, and one of so, one of yeah. the quintessential runs for that character. Yes. Um, and and my point being that it, you know, I suppose you could just go, hey, look, Jeff, I understand, you know, you're a big time comics writer, but I just want to know, <laughs> was that Dr. <laughs> Emmett a tip to my story idea from 2009, you know, or whatever it was? 2003, wasn't it? No, I think it was 2003. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I did not intend to bring that up in this podcast. I've never intended to talk about it. You got me in a good day, Zoran. So you got me talking about it. <laughs> I think that's a great story. And even whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Mm. The fact of the matter is that the coincidence is there and it mm-hmm. would be nice to know if, in fact, that's what happened. And I'm yes. sure that no one will ever turn around and say, you know what, actually, it's true. But they may just get in touch, Emmett, and let you know privately whether or not that's the way it worked out. <laughs> Well, and maybe I think, this podcast will do that, yes. Well, hopefully the listenership at some point will grow, grow to a point where, you know, Lemire might actually hear about it. There you go. There's your, there's your mission, folks. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you're enjoying the show. Please jump on Facebook and like us, as well as following us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find all the details on the website, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. Uh, 
So, so all right. So, flash forward uh, ten years after the horrific ordeal, and you're now <laughs> <laughs> you're now writing, uh, you're now writing your your first foray into comics. What was it like writing those anthologies for you as a, I suppose, not necessarily a novice, but you know, it's what what were the feelings you had when you were when you first kind of put when you first write that that first script? Um, I remember a sense of I think it was. Um, an Alan Moore essay all about writing comics where he, he basically says you can do anything. That's the advantage that comics have over film and books and everything else, because you're playing with images and you're playing with words. You can do any, you can juxtapose, you can have things happening uh, like visually happening in one place. And then the text is referring to something happening somewhere else. You can play. And I remember that sense of, Oh, I, I have made a thing that somebody else is going to take and and turn into this uh, story. And because of the two of us back bouncing ideas off each other, we've got something special here. And it really is when when an artist sends you because I, I have no artistic ability. That 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 should, I should headline that right now. I'm a writer, that's my background. But when when an artist sends you a piece of work that you you know, were a part of the making of in terms of the the, the writing informed this image. Uh, it's such a thrill. Like it's such an amazing thing that you, you baked a cake together. That's how I always think. Yeah. You baked a cake, you wrote the recipe, this person baked the cake. Boom. You got a nice cake. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how I tend to look at it. Were you, were you worried? I'm imagining handing over your script to someone who's drawing it and you know, you've got a particular sense of how you want it done considering mm. your, your background of reading and writing then you hand it to someone was there any trepidation no you, you you need to be open to that i mean that's the point of the collaboration like it's not it's not only what you see in your head it's what you can communicate to this other person if that person comes back with something that you do not recognize you didn't do a good enough job communicating it now potentially it's a bad collaboration but that's never happened to me i've never had somebody turn around a script and i've just gone what the hell is this <laughs> um that's never happened because the people i've worked with have all been excellent uh but i i think that it's your responsibility as the writer to ensure continuity of message right to the person illustrating it so i i had a sense through my conversations with folks like Jefferson, like Paul Brisk, like Hayden Fryer, you know, uh, people I've worked with in the past, you know, I know what I'm giving them and they know what I'm going to give them and they're going to put their spin in it. And that's why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. They're the right artist for that story. That's their style. That's their approach. You know, this going in, I don't know how folks do it where there isn't a relationship beforehand. And, you know, that can be a thing where, you know, somebody, an editor pulls a script out of a filing cabinet and hands it to an you know, artist go, make that. You know, that, that, that sense of a remove, I, I don't know how that works. There has to be some sort of living collaboration, at least for me at this point. Okay. Because I still, I am still learning, you know, that's how I see it. Does that, does that collaboration then feed into uh, how you mold the story or are you writing and then, and then collaborating or are you, as in... I've got a story. Now I'm going to take mm. it to the artist and go, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. um, and you draw it and then we'll work on it. So, you know, the, similar to the, like the old Marvel method, or is it, or is it um, every project you're working on or you've worked on, whether it be the anthologies, the, um, is it far away or far away? 
Far Away it was a the first self-published comic I did. So that was a one-shot. And the new one is The Beating of Wings. And both of those stories are with the same artist, right? Uh, Jefferson Sitsinski. Yeah. And uh, he's doing a lot of great work for um, Mad Cave Studios at the moment. He's got a new book that's just come out the other week called Villainous. A new issue came out the other week. That was Mad Cave? Mad Cave Studios, yeah. Uh, so with Jefferson, with the stories I've done with him, typically he approached... He approached me in the first instance, and we did a story together uh, that was published last year in a Polish uh, comics anthology. Um, Sweet. Uh, yes, and it was at an exhibition and and the the Frame Festival in in, in Warsaw, I think. And, uh, and that story was something that I wrote up myself, and then he had approached me, and then I said, "Okay, I think, I think I can rework this for you." I had checked out his. his portfolio i checked out his his style i got a sense of what he was like and then i just tailored the script for him far away and the beating of wings again i had already written something and jeff just happened to call me up and said hey do you have something for me and i was like yes i do jeff (laughs) here you go but each time we would talk through the script and he's from he's from brazil and and we would communicate via email and so Okay, I would, I'd, I'd be speaking to him very plainly. This is what I want. This is what it is. And he'd, he'd reply to me. Uh, so we sort of teased out what each page would be doing based on the script. But there was no sense of this word is gospel. You make it happen. The, 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 that's, that's antithetical to the point of the collaboration. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. I know I've heard stories that there are certain people who do that. And I, I just don't understand it. Uh, I think you need to flow with the collaborator you need to have them in mind when you're that, working on yeah i suppose yeah. that just comes down to a working relationship like some people yeah. just uh you know, depending on how removed they are from from the project or whether their heart's in it or not you know i, I suppose mm. there are many factors in, in that type of situation but much like i'm sure you're aware any comic book uh partnership that you know any comic book that's amazing there is always, mm. uh, the, you know, it, the strength comes from that relationship. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we, we, we always credit uh, Watchmen to Alan Moore. We keep talking about Alan Moore, Alan Moore, Alan Moore. Yeah, but everybody but forgets the work that Dave Gibbons put into that. The, the, the paneling, the, 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 the sense of the space itself, so much of it is down to Dave Gibbons. The color, the, the colors work in that too. Like there's so much of the spirit of collaboration in Watchmen and... I think there's this there's this continuing uh, attempt to frame the author as the most important element in a comic book because uh, they wrote the words, and I that defeats the point of the comic because the comic is a product of potentially multiple parties, mm-hmm. um, and you know you know there are people who are writer artists you know. They bring everything to the table. That's amazing. But I wonder if that's sometimes I suspect that might be a bit schizoid as well. Are, are the two sides of them talent wise talking to one another? Like, <laughs> you know, um, like I, I saw that documentary on Australian comic, uh, Melbourne, uh, Melbourne comics um, from a few years ago now. Bernard Calio uh, yep. was graphic the sort of narrator of thank graphic novels Melbourne. Yes. That sequence in that documentary where we see Bruce Mutard's approach where he works from script, uh, like film script almost. That blew my mind because I always thumbnail. 
like I have to, I have no artistic ability, but I put shapes on a page and I go, I think that's that. <laughs> I right. think I know what that is. And then I write to that. Right. Because I need to know what the things in each panel are doing for me to describe it. I need to know Interesting. what the page would look like um, for the poor artist who then has to translate my script. Uh, now, I don't share my thumbnails with anybody. Except, because so I, so the art, not even the artist sees your thumbnails? No, because Interesting. Uh, as, a, as a, uh, someone wrote to me the other day asking how I approach comics, and I said, well, I, I do thumbnails, and I, I do them like a horse that's been concussed. <laughs> it's not going to they'd have hooves. They can't even hold the pen. It's it's not it doesn't serve anyone else but me. It's it's something that I can understand visually. I can understand what that is. So so this, and then I write it. So this brings me back to my my question earlier. Mm. How is it when you're when you're now thumbnailing to help you mm. write and so you've now got a preconceived idea of of how of what the art's gonna be like, you know. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what I'm saying and what I'm getting at? And, yeah. then, and then you hand then it off to open. Jeff and, and he brings it's, it back and, and it's completely different and your brain goes, oh, that's all right then. You know? Yeah, like, I mean, it's, 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 it's discussion. I mean, that's the point. Like you go, I think this. And then this person goes, well, I think this. And you go, do you know what? You're right. Let's go with that. <laughs> but, um, but, but, or, I, hang on, hang on. I still don't understand this yeah. because, because <laughs> in, in my mind, let's say for instance, whenever I've worked on, on, on comics, uh, sure. it's, I'm I'm the writer and I'm also mm-hmm. the artist, and so mm-hmm. so I come up with the story, and mm-hmm. then I thumbnail it, and then I fine tune it, and then mm-hmm. I draw it. Right. Mm-hmm. In this instance, you're writing and thumbnail, or well, you're thumbnailing to write, mm-hmm. and then you what you've written you give to the artist, and then the yep. artist does whatever they want. Yep. And well, so no, in my that's, that's not <laughs> Let's let's not let's not paint my collaborators as some sort of uh, uh, rebellious. Like I'm just going to take this, do what I want. That's no, no, not no, no. But I mean, I mean, in the sense that they have complete freedom, and and like, how does that then marry? You know, it, like, how does it marry with the writing if you've already mm. got a preconceived idea of, of how everything is blocked out or mapped out? Because sometimes the person might have a better idea, right? I mean, honestly, if, if, if the person is an artist and I'm not, they have a better idea of how to visually use a space on the page. And I am trying to write to that. And I, again, like I said before, I'm learning more as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I will do a page, I'll go, all right, this is what I think happens. And these are the elements here. And then someone will come along and do that and go, yep, yeah, that's great. Or they might come along and go, I think, this panel should be on the next page. And I think then we should move on from there. And that could, that's a great suggestion, but that's, that's the nature of the discussion. That's right. the nature of collaboration. There needs to be give and take. And sometimes I will come back and say, sorry, look, we need to do this again because this didn't work. Uh, because this is what's meant to happen later. This needs to be here. And again, I would put that on myself to some extent. Like, did I make that clear enough in the script? Right, right. Did I establish that element X was present enough? So, like, I, I think that's just the case of how you work with someone, as you say. But I see it as an essential part of it that you're working along with somebody. Oh no, I, I completely take... understand it. I think for me, like, I'm still my brain is still stuck on the hmm. uh, the the thumbnailing and then the writing. 
<laughs> and then the collaboration. I don't think that's that unusual. I think I know a few folks do that. And I think that comes down to, again, it's a visual medium. You're trying to, at the very least, orient yourself to how something will work on the page as images. <laughs> you know, I know, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to talk to you. Understand mm. the process and, and then relating it back to how I do things. And, and it's just like, I think my brain is actually either imploding or exploding. I can't figure out which way it's going. <laughs> because, uh, you know, having written things in the past... Mm. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the times, you know, it's all in my head, and so mm. I'm able to punch it all out and go. This is this is the story. So this is where I want everything to go, or this is the way I want everything to go. And then I sit down and map it visually, mm. and go, okay, so this fits there, that fits there. That's what I want there. That's what I want there. That's what I want there. Now, albeit I am working on it myself, so I can. There are certain liberties that I would take, in, you know, I would take because I know where everything is going. Now, having to communicate that with with another artist, I probably, I, you know, I probably will. I, I reckon I'd fail. I reckon I'd fail trying to describe my my vision to somebody mm. else. And so, you know, the way that, um, you know, let's say for instance on something I'm on a project I'm working at the moment, I've got an I've story's done, the script mm-hmm. is pretty much done, the thumbnails are finished. I think I've got a couple couple of pages to go. And everything's mapped out. So if if I tried and got nowhere with the art, the way I look at it is I can now pass the thumbnails to someone and go, This is what you know, this is what I want you to do, man, because I, I just don't have the confidence or I don't have the time or mm. you know, I can pass something off. And I actually don't have to explain much because it's like here, here's your template, but that doesn't yep. mean you can't mess with it. Yeah. And so you, by by you thumbnailing and then writing, and then not showing the thumbnails. <laughs> I, mm. I go, so then you're now, you're solely communicating through the script what you want the artist to do. But I understand through the process what the script should be doing because I thumbnailed it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Wow. It's a negotiation. It's like a hostage. The comic's the hostage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy with the gun to the hostage. I, I would actually be interested to know what what other what artists like people who who aren't writers who are solely artists. I mm. would love to hear what they think about. And I'm, I I don't know if I've asked this in depth about about um, collaboration collaborations. I suppose most of the people I've spoken to um, are the whole uh, package. Yeah. yeah, the whole package for the most part. But yeah. um, I, I would be actually be interested in, in knowing how that would work or what artists think of, the, you know, all these different processes that are going uh, in a commercial sense or even in, in you know, in just yeah. a, a friendly collaboration. Uh, th- this is like, this is the well, kind I of th- stuff that, that really kind of interests me about talking about comics. It's Paul, yeah, Paul, um, Paul Brisk, like, who's one of the first people I've worked with on comics and some of our stories came out through decay uh, back in, I want to say 2014, 2015 mm-hmm. Paul used to comment. And, and this is very early on in, in terms of me scripting uh, that reading my scripts felt like reading a movie script and in not that it was a movie script. What he meant was he could see the movie as he read the script. Like he, whereas you know, if you've ever read movie scripts, they tend to be quite uh, succinct, mm-hmm. and because the the idea is that the director then visualizes 
what the script you know yes. suggests to him yeah. whereas paul was saying that he could picture it based on the words i was using he could see the page that he had to do based on the words i'd used um and i guess that my job is to describe to that artist here's what's happening here's how we could move and break it down as much as possible. Uh, somebody who I think is a great person for this is Jason Franks. Like Jason really understands moment to moment breakdown. Like he's very good at that. Mm -hmm. And he's reviewed some of my work in the past. And like, that's something he always sort of calls out. It's like, well, this is doing this in this point, and this should be doing this in this point. Like don't have it happening at the same time. There is, you know, there is that suggestion that time is, should be captured on the panel as it goes and then next panel next moment in time next panel next moment in time and your awareness of that like grant morrison's comment about the comic is a time machine that like you're capturing moments what's happening in that moment mm -hmm. it's not like a film where there's continuous action uh so there, there is that idea of my job is to make it as easy as possible for the artist to be able to see what i see or what i want the reader to see and then just portray it that way they may have some ideas sparked by that that could really bring a new energy to it great we should be open to that uh so this is not a marvel method this is not i've got a notion jack go off there and draw it up for me would you like it's not that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's here's what it is how can we make it better Oh, sorry, I thought you had more to go on that one. No, nope. I thought that was pretty <laughs> definitive. <laughs> Did you manage to do any circuit work with uh, Faraway on like any conventions or anything like that? No, I didn't at all. I um, I released it the same way I did with Beating Wings. I released it through Comicsology first. And oh, you're thinking even, even better. Yep. Even even better. Considering that you did release them via Comicsology, what was the response like? I got some very favorable reviews and um, it's no surprise that Jeff was the star of a lot of them because he's an amazing artist. Mm -hmm. So that was good to see that, okay, folks enjoyed this. They found it funny. I think the best review I got was one of the artists involved in the, the sort of back matter, the gallery for far away was uh, Ellie Jenkins. And uh, she told me that her mum like fell out of a chair laughing uh, at a certain point in the comic, which I won't spoil for those who haven't read it. And I was like, that's the best review I could get. But for the most part, I just, I laid it out on Comixology. Mm -hmm. I sold it through some retailers like uh, All-Star, obviously, and yep. Kings and people like that. Mm -hmm. And then I just sold it personally. Like I um, I sold it to people I knew. I, I, I went to... Um, I just put it on a website and say, hey, contact me here. I'll sell you a copy. Uh, I didn't do any conventions at all. And Is it up on Owner Indie? No, no. I, I've, I have got an account with Owner Indie, and I've uh, reached out to them to say, I'd like to sell through you. Because um, now I'm going to try and sell Far Away and the Beach of Wings to them. So that's, that's hopefully that will be coming soon. But I didn't want to approach Owner Indie until I had something like a back catalog yeah, to right. work with. You know, now I've got two. I go, ah, that's enough. 
What's um what was what was the relationship like with Comicsology? How did you approach them? Was it like, hey, oh. I'd like to sell through you, or like what uh, was all, all all my close close friends over Comicsology, like like uh, Michael and David and Jeff, because <laughs> every time you write to them, it's a different name goes back. <laughs> Hello, this is Jose at Comicsology. Okay, hi Jose. They are very it's very straightforward. Look, if you're interested in using it as a platform, the advantage is it's there. It's accessible. Yep. You can point people to a link. There's my work. There it is. You've got my details there, my contact information there, my website's there. Uh, anything I've ever contributed to as a comic creator that's also listed on Comicsology is also there. So again, you've got that sense of a portfolio. That's what I wanted from them. Mm-hmm. So it worked to my advantage, just what I wanted. Uh, you know, it didn't set the world on fire commercially. Right. Doesn't matter to me. It's still there. It's continuing to sell. So I, I, I'm, I'm happy enough to leave it as, a, as it is for now, but it would be something I would maybe review down the path and go, okay, how can I maximize on this? Say if I, if I work on a couple of other books and I get them out into the world, all right, how do I go back to these early titles and make them more present? Because I, um, I was, yeah, it was, I haven't spoken to a few people about Comixology. Mm. I've, I've never actually known anyone who has had their stuff listed on there. And so it's interesting because a lot of the times when I've used it, and I've only used it sparingly, uh, okay. You know, I've managed to find a lot of uh, a lot of independent stuff on there, and I just wonder yeah. what the difference is between being on Comixology and not being on Comixology for someone who's actually trying to trying to do something. You know, trying to mm. get their work seen. Because the way I look at it, because you can call Comixology all sorts of names, and yes, they're owned by a big <laughs> conglomerate, you know, behemoth. But yep. is it actually advantageous? Or uh, are, you, are you putting yourself at a disadvantage by turning around and saying, no, I'm not listing my comics on there because they suck? Yeah. As I said, my sole thinking about it is the, the work is there and I can point to it at any point. That's the advantage of it. Uh, it is a conglomerate. And I, you know, there, there are all sorts of ethical questions that could be raised about how much money the, the Bezos empire has pulled in over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. But... For my purposes, as somebody who doesn't have much of a public profile, who isn't very particularly well known, I know that my work is going to be there, and you know, for SEO purposes, it's easily findable. So that's that's which would you have to think about these days? Yes, absolutely. You need to think about that. You 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 could have produced a I I um there's a particular Australian work for the last five years who's a comic graphic novel, beautiful, stunning piece of work. Really, really, really good. It got nominated, I think it won a Ledger Award. Very, very good. The Demon Noir. Can't find it anywhere. Can't find it. Doesn't exist. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, there, there's like barely any mentions of it on Google. Beautiful book. Oh, like, it, was, it was It was stunning. I remember talking about it on mm. the show at Triple R. And mm. yeah, I can't believe that he, he's not listing that. Mind you, though, he got that, that was published through a Brisbane company. Yes. And they threw money at it, something chronic. Yes. But I actually haven't. No, I, he said I remember speaking to him at um, at a convention a couple of years ago, and he said he was working on a new project. And and yeah, fair play to him. You know, he's got the craft and he made a beautiful object. Um, and maybe he wants to work on something else right now. But to my thinking, it's like, well, if it existed digitally, then it's it's there. It'll uh, stay there. Yeah. You know. Until the Bezos Empire falls, <laughs> it's which there's no there. likelihood of that happening anytime soon. Anytime soon, yeah. So, and that's that's strictly how I think of it. I, I just going, well, I have made something; it exists, and it continues to exist in this format. And I can make all sorts of different versions of it, should I choose to. 
if I have the budget to do it, I can print it in whatever format I want, and then I could maybe make another go at selling it. But for now, it's here, and that's fine. So like with the beating of wings, I want to do a print edition. I haven't done one yet. Someone advised me to wait for the new year, so you could ask around, and maybe publishers won't uh, take the piss. Uh, so I'm going to put some feelers out and see what kind of quotes I can get. But again, it would be something that I would look to have a small print run done, um, not break the bank doing it, approach a few retailers. Would you take this off me? Great. I'll post send the post to you uh, and maybe sell it through myself, through my, uh, my own website or mm-hmm. through the likes of On Indie or anything else like that. Uh, and then it's it's out there. And of course, send a copy to the uh, Australian uh, National Library. Uh, you know, it's always good to have something in there too. <laughs> Absolutely. Why the hell not? Why the hell not? Yeah. In fact, in fact, anybody I think you're legally you're legally required to do it. <laughs> you have to do it. Yeah. Right. Wow. Didn't yeah. think of that. Mm. It's a it's a copyright thing. You need to actually provide a version. Of I wonder, something. I, wonder, I would actually to... like to know how many Australian creators haven't done that. I would say this a is lot my of question. This is my question. I, and no one's going to come after you. It's, I'm not saying that, but like. It's if you if you produce a work in this country, there there's supposed to be a record of it. Well, For the sake of Australian, you know, cultural management, absolutely. we know where they all are. I you agree. Know, it's, absolutely, it's, yeah. absolutely. It's it's one of the reasons why I look at the Ledger's annual mm. um and think it is it is that is actually a historical document. Yep. And yep. um and I think it's so important that that people, you know, irrespective of irrespective of the quality of the work that they produce it or what they think about it, it should yeah. still be documented and it should still, it should be noted somewhere. Absolutely. Hey, look, anyone listening, if you're a comic creator coming up, maybe, you know, you don't rate yourself with being a Top Gun yet, but, you know, you're pump, pumping out the work. doesn't matter. Get onto the Ledgers. Get onto the Aureolus Awards. Get onto the Australian Horror, the, the Australian Shadow Awards, whatever. All these different comic awards that happen every year, submit your work. Submit your work every year because you're on the list then, and that's important. And send and, and that, also send it to the what, what was the uh, Australian? That I think I, I think I've got that wrong, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's the National Library, yes. Uh, so yeah, you you su- submit it there too. Get on you, you've worked on something, you made it, it exists. There should be a record of it, and then people might find you, and then maybe there's an opportunity that could come from that. But you made something, you should be proud of it. Put it out there. I agree. Mm. I agree. Thank you very much for saying that. All right. Well, then, The Beating of Wings. Mm. Uh, break it down for us. Okay. So this takes place in a alternate version of Earth where a spiritual event has occurred centuries ago, uh, sometime around the 15th century. And now magic is commonly used. There is a a sort of authority that they are priests, but they're act- they actually act like detectives, and they're patrolling a city called Emmanuel. And there has been a series of demon attacks, hence the beating of wings. The, be- the wings that are beating are the wings of demons, and they're uh, attacking city uh, citizens of this city, Emmanuel, which is nominally somewhere in North Africa. And uh, a brother, December, who's the main character, he performs a ritual using magic uh, based around memory to see the crime scene, see what happened. And this draws the attention of um, a demonic presence from another world that decides to uh, 
teach him a lesson. And the that presence, that sort of malevolent force, is narrating the comic. So the voice, the, the narrator is this sort of evil demon talking to you, the reader, and and, and sort of taunting December. Uh, so there is this idea, the basic idea is, what would it do to religion if all the ideas of God and the devil and, and angels and demons and magic were tangible, tangibly real? What would that do? And what would that, what change would that cause in how we live? And one of the ideas I had was that all the sort of Abramaic faiths, you know, um, Islam, Judaism, Christianity have more or less uh, circled the wagons sort of like, shit there's stuff out there we don't understand okay let's how do we how do we defend our cities from it um and that's what brother december and his colleagues like sister gotha that's what they represent they are so this holy order that also are a force for justice uh an authority uh, that are trying to defend their the city from these sort of spiritual dangers uh when i read it it the story seemed really unfinished particularly when I got to the end and I just went, oh, what's happening now? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Where's the rest of the story? It seemed like there was a lot in there and um, trying to trying to go through it with my mind and, and not being able to, you know, do, do you get what I'm saying? Like, No, no, yeah. It, it, you're, you're, you're not the first, yeah. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was and... just, um, there was so much packed in and then... Yeah. Then there's the reveal at the end, and I just went, "Oh, well, hang on a second. Uh, what do you What do you mean? What do you mean this is the end? This is you've you've, you know, because in my mind the end is basically the start. Mm. And so, there's there's a story still to be told here, and uh, I think somebody said the same thing to me about Far Away, where they were saying. So what happens next? And I go, no, that's it. That's the story. Um, I, I, <laughs> Are you I, kidding? I, I somewhat perversely uh, had the notion that because and there's a there's a bit of dialogue between December and Gotha where they're talking about, oh, do you remember what happened 100 years ago in London? This is a bit like that. Uh, I had this sort of perverse idea. If I do revisit these characters, revisit this world and this setup that I've um, established, that that story be set 100 years before. <laughs> in London to show what happened then right. um, and sort of explain more about where this holy order has come from, what the nature of this magical system they all seem to be employing is. And maybe brother December, his story isn't done. Maybe there is something connected still to him. It's, it's like I said, it's, it's a, it's a vignette. It's a sort of, this is a glimpse of this world that I've, just essayed and I uh, was and Jeff approached me and he said do you have something for me and I said no I've got this thing and really a lot of it was I want to do a story with demons I want to do a story with uh, magic right okay I want to you know I want to I want to do a story where um, I think over email we talked about that I don't like how often fantasy tends to rely on the same sort of settings and tropes and mm -hmm. tends to be bound up with Europe. I was going, well, no, this is in Africa somewhere. And this is in a version of Africa where history is radically different. And what we would see as the center of power in the world is closer to Africa than, say, London. Um, it's the, the, the West, as we conceive, it doesn't really exist here. And, and all these things I just threw in there stirred it up like a gumbo and served it and that's 
gosh. Now, potentially, I might revisit this. And hey, if people like it and they want to learn more, certainly that gives me incentive to do another one. Mm-hmm. But this is, this, this is, as I said again, just here's a glimpse of this world. This is what's happened on this particular day. And uh, if, if you want more, I'll, I'll do more. But I, I just, it's, it's mostly set up, yeah, for this world. You're, so you're investing all this time or energy mm. and time into a book like this that, that it actually presents more questions than answers, let's say, for instance. Sure. Uh, but, but there is no intention to continue it. Uh, Not necessarily. <laughs> uh, I, like, I suppose it's just challenging me in the sense that, you know, a majority of people who are putting comics together, you know, th- there is a story. You know, it's one piece of a story, but that story mm-hmm. is actually mapped out and we're going to go, we're only going to do the one and we're going to see how we go. Whereas you've, you've put so much into this, but you're only planning on doing this one in particular for right now. <laughs> Do you, get yeah. saying? Do you understand why I'm no. upset? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm, no, upset, I'm, I'm just um, getting upset. Like now, you've you've done two books and you've had mm. feedback in the sense of people saying, "Well, hey, man, where's the next one? This is really cool." Uh, and you're going, "No, no, 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 that, no that's it. <laughs> that's it. I'm, I want to I want to work on something else now." Yeah. Is is that a conscious thing or? That's a conscious. It, it's okay. a choice. It's a, it, and it seems to. It's. Clearly, is a style that I, I I lean into because there's some prose stories I've done as well, where there people have said, "Well, it ends, and then it's over." And I'm going, "Yeah," and, and and which is not like necessarily that. I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but sometimes stories end, and you know, one might suggest that's a bit like life; you don't get your resolution. But I think. As well, it can be tantalizing in a different way, where it's like, well, why don't you imagine what happens next? And uh, why, why don't you think about this world and what would it be like to be in this world and what that could mean? Um, it's it's not especially unusual. Uh, a lot of other uh, writers have have done some similar things. I think um, was it M. John Harrison? I think I read a lot of his stuff when I was a bit too young to be reading it, like his Viriconium novels, and uh, they were so gnomic and weird, and things just stopped. And I'm sure that's been an influence on me, but I don't necessarily mind it myself, and that's why I'm putting it out there. I, I have like uh, pulled up my little uh, treehouse ladder and then decide, okay, feck it, I'll. I'll uh, I'll do something with a beginning, middle, and an end. And uh, I have a story with a uh, Hayden Fryer that's coming out this year um, in a Peter Pan anthology. And uh, it's it's each story in the anthology has, has to do something to do with uh, Peter Pan. It's for okay. an American publisher, mm-hmm. and I chose to set it in Australia at the end of the last century and to wildly borrow um, from the life of May Gibbs. And uh, sort of merge May and Wendy Darling and just see what happens. And that has a beginning, middle, and an end. And um, I'm very proud of it. Hayden's done amazing work in it. Uh, we had a sensitivity reader called Catherine G. Gledhill. I just want to give her a shout out. She was incredible, who just reviewed the work for any issues with colonial language and uh, potential upset. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. And I think that's a solid meat and potatoes meal of a story. You know, it's, it's what you want it to be. Um, so I, I'm not going to continue teasing readers with uh, stories that tail off into some sort of strange uh, afterlife. But um, for this one, I just, 
I just liked the idea of the eventual fate of the protagonists, uh, the sense of this world is going to continue dealing with these crises. Um, but perhaps in this one instance, this the sacrifice that the main character chose actually will have an impact. It will change things, but we don't know how. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think, like in in particular with the beating of wings? Do you think that the way that you've put it together, and the way it was written, and considering how much is actually in there, because it's quite a lot, and I, mm. I read it a couple. I had to read it a couple of times to just get my head around how how much was in there. Mm. Do you, Do you think just whacking it in one does it service? I think it is what it is, and what I my approach was to write that afterward where I cited all the things that I was drawing on in making it mm -hmm. just to say, here's my point of view, folks. This is, this is the thing you're holding in your hands and this is where it came from. But I think I also make a point in the afterward. I say something along the lines of like, I cite Francis Yates's book on Giordano Bruno and the, this her oh, study right. of, yep, yep. of white magic and, you know, this idea of uh, memory and magic and language. And I'm saying, look, these things are on my mind. These are things I was thinking about. And maybe that will help you like, look at this as a story. But I'm just citing this here and this afterward. I'm not going to belabor that point in the story. The story is what happened. And this then is like a sort of aperitif, like, here you go, there's some stuff. <laughs> Here's some further reading for you if you choose. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's a, it's a thing, right? The whole it, the whole thing is a thing, and then and then getting the likes of like Laura Renfrew and Ashlyn King Macklin and Sarah Winfred Searle, and then of course Tim Malloy with that amazing cover. Like these artists as well, I invited them to sort of come into this world and go take something that you want and make a make an illustration. What do you want to do? And um, as I mentioned again in the afterward, like Ashlyn came back to me and she's like, "Well, I'm really into." Um, I'm really into Austin Osmond's Spare. I love this artist. He was a contemporary of Alistair Crowley's and I really like his stuff. And I was going, oh, yes, please do that. <laughs> like, I love his work too. And uh, I was introduced to Spare through um, Alan Moore and James Williams III's uh, Promethea. Mm -hmm. And he's a great book. Great book, you know. And um, I interviewed J.H. Williams III um, uh, two years ago now, I think. And I got to basically ask him all my nerdy questions about magic and mysticism and Promethea and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I've been in touch with him about this too, saying, you influenced me. You you helped me because you were serving up all this stuff in Promethea. And I kind of wanted to do something similar. It's like, here's a bunch of things that I've thought of, I've researched, or I've read about. And, and they're all either sort of ingredients in the mix or I'm just going to cite them for you in this afterward. Go go have a play. Go read for yourself. Go check them out. I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers. Maybe that's why I don't like endings. <laughs> Defensive endings. It's like, who am I <laughs> to say well, what happened? Well, in know? regards to these characters, you are God. Ah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, was it Tolkien had his idea that he's the sub-creator because he, he thought it'd be blasphemous? to be a creator. It was against his religious values. He was saying, no, 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 I'm a sub-creator. I am merely a link in the chain with the real creator. Uh, I don't subscribe to his religious views. I'm not religious myself, but um, uh, I like that idea. I, think, I yeah, like but, the idea. But like you, like you intimate, it's, it's, it's a cop-out. I mean, at the end of the day, he was the creator. <laughs> well, I mean, he's saying that the creative force 
that led to him being a writer is the main instrument. That's that's the point he's making. Whereas what I'm saying is I'm simply responding to a bunch of stuff that's been done to me. And then maybe you will respond to this in a way that will do something else. And that's great. Let's keep the let's keep the chain moving. Mm. But um I have I I know Zoran, I know this is not necessarily what people come to a story for, but I'm sure there's some who will, and that's that's okay with me. Aside from a little bit of judgment from me, but I think that's got more to do with the way I read and the way I look at things more mm. than anything else. And I'm sure that there'll be other people who who look at look at it in a similar way and there'll be other people who, you know, just go, wow, that was a really cool, succinct kind of small story. What else you got? Mm. You know, it, in the end, much like what you said with regard to comicsology, I can't help but think now if... If it is a, a matter of building a repertoire, I suppose this is probably the easiest way. And to do small, kind of short, individual types of comics showcasing different types of stories that you can do that will hopefully garner some some response from somebody that could give you another opportunity. Absolutely. That's it in a nutshell. And I think when we spoke years ago, I think I said something very similar. I was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm writing comics and they're short. And I just, I do one and I move on to the next one. And that was because I did the thing you're never supposed to do, that every, every comic creator gives as good advice to aspiring creators. The one thing you should never do is your, for your first work, you set out to do your masterpiece or your, your, your graphic novel or, you know, and this, The Beating Wings is almost an apology for a collaboration with Paul Brisk called familiar that turned into an 80 page behemoth (laughs) (laughs) it's you know a very similar magical system very similar principal character but that had an epic story it had a beginning a middle and a definite definitive end and paul to his credit made it like it exists as worked pages familiar is a story that has art attached to it it's not been finished and that's because it's just too damn expensive to do and um, yeah i mean that's it there's a practical consideration to be made and like i mentioned before like jason franks he, he sort of had a word with me uh where he's going what is this and i said well it's a graphic novel and he says well does it have to be could it be like a, a mini series a couple of issues you know to make it more digestible and that's and that's why you see a lot of series out there like that that just they have beginning, middle, and end, but they're maybe a maxi series or a mini series, and that's great. But I shouldn't have done it. Uh, I should have just done a short story, and that should have been it. But yeah, we got excited. Away. Yeah, exactly. We got excited. We were bouncing ideas back and forth. I went off and I wrote this bloody thing. <laughs> and uh, Paul keeps saying that one day we'll get back to it, and I, and I think we will. But uh, for now, I'm just trying to get some short stories out the door and. Uh, Go from there. Well, I think I think Jason's right. You know, th- there's no reason why you can't do it a 12-page short, mm. or you know, or a 30 30-page 30 short. It doesn't have to be 80. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interviewing people about comics for the last few years and and being a long li- uh, lifelong reader. Whenever I've looked at creating something, particularly in in comics form, uh, or in in the form of comics, the comics medium, uh, I have never thought that my level of skill would be up there to produce something longer 
than 10 pages. Mainly from the perspective of, one, who the hell is going to read it? Two, am I good enough? Am I good enough writer? Am I good enough artist? And I suppose none of that stuff really matters, but there are they are things to be considered as far as I'm concerned because yeah. of the the history I have with the medium itself. And... Mm. Um, and and also being, uh, I suppose, on some level, a, a commentator about it, and and having discussions and going on on you know that that ephemeral record out there, you know, having said some things that people disagree or agree with, and I just kind of go, well, yeah, I, I I think I'm gonna put my toe in the water before I uh, before I jump in the pool. Mm. That's I mean, and that's always the way I've looked at it because. And whether you you can make all sorts of psychological readings about it, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, well rather than invest so much energy, particularly now in my older age and with so many other responsibilities abound, it's it, it's even harder to to commit to something that could potentially um, take years. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's it. Um, I, I I'm a glutton for punishment because uh, I am. Once again, working with someone on what promises to be a longer piece. But this time, I think the difference is that we are going to approach a publisher directly and uh, say, here's a thing we've done. Uh, we'd be interested in whether you would be happy to publish it. And the reason is because I've just got so much faith in this project. I think it's, and the artist is Lenore Avery. Uh, from New South Wales, and she's an incredible artist. And uh, I, I found her website one day. I just saw this her style, and I was going, "That suits this perfectly." And I, I made a pitch to her for this comic I've done, which is set in Sydney in the eighties. It's something of a vision quest. It touches on the collapse of the Australian comic industry. It touches on things like Frew comics. It touches on political figures, um, local characters, some people I, I met in their old age that were around Sydney in the eighties and uh, she started sending me through pages. I'm delighted with what she's done. I think it looks incredible. And this is going to be like a pitch packet uh, with a script, with uh, some finished work and some drafts and just go, here's a, uh, here's the, here's the comic. Would you publish it? And, um, I'll give you another little scoop. Uh, one of the one one character who appears in it is a young Tony Abbott. Oh, oh God! Mm, yes. <laughs> so we'll see where that gets to. <laughs> let's let's. That's brilliant. That's great. That's great news. But that that that's clearly something that will, as you say, take investment of time and money and it sounds, effort. And it, it definitely sounds like it. But yeah, it's 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 not eighty pages. Thankfully, <laughs> it's less than eighty pages. Uh, I didn't make the same mistake, but. It's it's clearly intended as a graphic novel, and my hope is that because it's so tied with Australian history and the sense of a particular period in Australia that I'm interested in, in the eighties, maybe it'll have something that sets it apart from other graphic novels in the market, and someone will take a punt on it. Indeed, I actually think that's a great idea, and and uh, it certainly opens up the scope for the readership of of a project mm. like that, rather than. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, as I've said many times in the past, you know, I love fantasy and I love all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I really do enjoy reading autobiographical comics. Yeah, uh, and you know, and and or, or historical, uh, you know, reading about historical events in comic book yes. format. You know, I, I think I think that it, that's why the medium works and that's why the medium is so great is because you can do anything with it. Um, have you have you ever met um, Con Chrysalis? 
I don't think I have. He's a Melbourne creator. I think he's based in the UK now. So he's a he's a comic creator. He's an academic. He's a musician. And uh, I was researching an article all about David Bowie and comic books and kind of people who've been inspired by David Bowie. And I found that this Australian creator had done a whole series about David Bowie. Um, he's not just done that. He's done Jack Kirby. He's done a book all about Jack Kirby. He's done a book all about the Smiths. He's a really interesting guy. And one of the reasons I'm interested in him is his approach to comics in terms of biography and the amount of research he puts in is fascinating to yeah. me. Like he's not, he's not taking, he's not taking leaps. He's not inventing. He's not, you know, um, he's just abiding by the record. And then he's saying, well, this is, this is what happened this time. This is what happened this time. The David Bowie book is really interesting because he focuses on Bowie's childhood as David Jones. Oh, right. And there's so much there. There's so much a momentous stuff there that is, is very gripping that I haven't heard discussed beyond the usual sort of David Bowie. Oh, didn't his brother, wasn't his brother mad? You know, Aladdin Insane is, is, is inspired by his brother. And that's it. That's the discussion. Whereas Khan went deep in it. And a lot of what he's doing is, is it's all cited. He's like quoting from books and the research is all there. You can see it laid out as a reader. I want to see more of that. I want to see more comics like that. I think I think that's yeah, they've done the work. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that. Uh, and in fact, I won't be surprised when when books like that start proliferating. At the moment, mm. I see a lot of autobiographical kind of stuff because I mm. think you know, particular you know some of the some of the stuff that's come out of the UK and some of the stuff that's coming out of come out of the the states so far is just phenomenal. And it just seems like it's grown like that genre of comics, the autobiographical book. Is is just it's you know there are more and more and I think it's it's a wondrous thing I think a lot of people who are doing those types of books are incredibly brave not only from the mm-hmm. amount of work that they have to do but also having you know some of the books are dealing with with subject matter that you mm. wouldn't normally associate with comics and I think that's even more powerful yeah we'll leave very it cool. <laughs> we'll leave it at that Emma thank you very much no problem sir and for chatting and and thanks really, so much man thanks for thanks for generous being so generous with your time I really appreciate well, it thank sorry. You. Thank you. Went on for so long. Good luck with with the new projects. Thanks so much for uh, talking about the Far Away and uh, the Beating of Wings, which are all available on Comixology and uh, and other various places. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Check out. Uh, it's all on my website, emmetokuna.com. You can drop by, see uh, my backlog of work, and get in touch. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. That's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it would be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And for more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser or search engine graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. And uh, until next time, enjoy the comics that you read and read the comics you enjoy. Thanks very much. Credits. Written, produced, edited, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation and additional production. Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham versus Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.